You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is episode with Giorgio Salanti, an interview about network meta-analysis, why, what and how. give you this interview with Georgia. She is basically a superstar on the network meta-analysis research side. She has published a lot. She has worked with all the different key stakeholders, has a huge influence in the field and just is a really, really nice person as well. So enjoy this interview with her where you will learn about network meta-analysis. You will, if you have predominantly worked in clinical trials, you look at a very, very different point of view on the field overall, and I'm sure you'll take away a lot of, lot of great things. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. Today I'm speaking with Georgia Salanti. Hi Georgia, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well, and thank you for pronouncing my name properly. Most people called me Salanti. <laughs> Thanks so much. And uh, maybe we can start um, with a little bit of your background, um, how you're coming to the place you're in now, and what were your, your main statistical um, research fields up to now. Right. Um, I am currently Associate Professor for Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the University of Bern uh, at the Institute for Social and Preventive Medicine, which belongs to the medical school. Um, I have been uh, working in many different places around Europe. So first I studied maths at the University of Athens, And then I did uh, postgraduate studies in uh, applied statistics, epidemiology and operational research in health at the University of Brussels. And then I went to Munich to do a PhD in statistics at the Ludwig Maximilians University. Mm. And then uh, I went to Cambridge uh, at the MRC where... Uh, Effectively, my career in meta-analysis started because uh, I uh, worked under, as a postdoc under the supervision of Julian Higgins, and I learned a lot of things about meta-analysis there. And well, for those of you, as a listener, if you don't know Julian Higgins, he's the first author of the Cochrane Handbook uh, in terms of the Uh, methodological things. So he's, he's the editor of uh, yeah. the handbook and has contributed tremendously to the field. Uh, for probably most people would be uh, familiar with the I square uh, measure for heterogeneity. That's something that the Julian introduced to the field. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, after Cambridge, then I went uh, back to my home country, Greece. And I worked at the University of Ioannina for nine years. And then I decided to move on. And uh, the last four years, I am here in Bern, working still in evidence synthesis, primarily in evidence synthesis. Awesome. Thanks so much. So today we'll talk about network meta-analysis, why, what, and how. And so um, let's start a little bit with your why and maybe you can also speak to that why you're personally involved uh, so much interested in network meta-analysis well I, i have to confess that initially that was by chance because uh, i started working in uh, 2003 in cambridge as i said and the project was about evidence synthesis from multiple treatments And um, this is how I was introduced to it. Just it was an assignment I have to go through with. But um, after a, a year or so, I 
I decided this is really a very interesting field, so fascinating, both methodologically, but also from the application point of view, because you can answer really very important clinical questions with it. And the maths behind it are fun too. <laughs> that's very good. Yeah, I think that's um, quite an interesting way to feel passionate about something. Um The more you learn about something, the more your passion can grow into that. And I completely agree. It's a really, really important field because, um, especially in areas where there's multiple treatment options. So, so maybe 10 or 20 treatment options. It's pretty much impossible to have a direct comparison for all of these. And even if you would have direct head-to-head -head studies for all of these. These would probably have come from different sources and it wouldn't necessarily came out that um, there would be a nice order and ranking you would get from that. But, uh, you know, looking into them, you could see something like treatment A is better than treatment B. And then in another study, treatment B is better than treatment C. And in a third study, treatment C is better than treatment A again. So, so you would have this kind of full circle and then in the end, you don't know what's the best treatment. And so uh, this is where network meta-analysis come in and are quite useful. Um, where do you see um, from your end that uh, why are network meta-analysis also important beyond this kind of, let's say, clinical thing? No, I have to say I haven't been uh, working in uh, marching fields outside the medical um, and clinical research. And okay. uh, it's... Um, Yeah, it's a quite quite a big field already, and there are so many applications. I didn't have time to look anything outside uh, medicine and clinical research. Yes, yeah, so, so one area where it plays a big role, and I think that's also why um, the UK is so um, one of the fields, one of the areas where there's so much research, is that it directly feeds into the. Um, economic evaluation of, of new drugs. So um, NICE uses these um, network meta-analysis to um, feed into the economic models that they use. And lots of other company, uh, countries have followed that approach. So around the world, network meta-analysis are really important for um, reimbursement decisions. So that's You know, not just from a, let's say, purely medical treatment decision point of view. Uh, this is really important, but it's also from a, a cost effectiveness point of view. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. And on, uh, there are recent developments on, in fields like, um, diagnostic test accuracy, uh, comparisons. And uh, prognostic factors comparisons, but I think they are still in their infancy. No, oh, okay, but that is a nice area to to watch out for. Whether we'll be able to use, yeah, a network of indirect comparisons there as well. But let's first start into uh, network meta analysis. So, so, if you would describe to an new starters that has never kind of heard about uh, this term. What are all the different steps that you need to go through to, to come up to uh, such a nice result where you can compare multiple treatments with each other? Okay, would that person be a statistician and clinician or a lay person? <laughs> a statistician. Okay. All our, all our, or pretty much all of our listeners are, are statisticians. So. Okay, good. So, Well, the first thing probably is to work together with an expert in the field. Statisticians cannot do by themselves a network meta-analysis. Because the point is not just to put data together. is The point is to put them in a sensible way, to put, to put together data that fit together and make sense, and then interpret the results uh, under the light of the clinical context or the, the research question that was initially uh, put. So network meta-analysis 
are triggered by interesting research questions that either clinicians or their patients have. And the most critical question that actually is raised by patients and clinicians at the point of care is what is the drug of choice for a given condition? For example, we do not care whether antidepressants are better than placebo. We, Of course, we do care, but not just that. Once we have proven that antidepressants are better than placebo, then we want to know whether they are different whether a particular antidepressant is better than the others. And then the clinicians and patients come with the question, can you tell me which antidepressant has the better profile in terms of efficacy and acceptability? And then, so we start an NMA with a research question which should uh, be framed very carefully in terms of PICO, in terms of patients, what patients are we talking about, interventions, which interventions we want to compare, and um, control whether we want to involve um, in our decision-making or in our uh, data set, we want to involve legacy treatments or placebo or treatment as usual, things like that. And I will come back to that in the methodology because, um, you know, people might be wondering, why do you include placebo or treatment as usual or some other treatments in the, in the data set if, these are not real options in practice. And mm-hmm. then once you have decided about which treatments you want to compare and what are the um, non-active treatments or legacy treatments that you want to involve, uh, then you have to define the outcome. So what, what does better mean for an antidepressant compared to another? Is the one that... Uh, uh, provides the best chances to respond to the treatment. How is this response defined? And do we care about side effects, specific side effects, all side effects? Do we care about uh, treatment discontinuation? All that usual um, considerations that come in a pairwise meta-analysis, let's say. But these are very, very important to be um, defined very carefully at the start. And to my experience... That's the longest and most important phase of a systematic review and network meta-analysis. Like, get your team together, discuss with uh, clinicians and experts in the field, and get things right from the start with respect to the people. And then, okay, and then the um, uh, librarians step in and they develop a a search strategy that reflects your inclusion and exclusion criteria as defined in the PICO. They get the relevant studies, the research... uh... Just just a note, if we talk about in-exclusion criteria, these are not in-exclusion criteria for kind of patients, so that we know from the patient uh, from the clinical trials, but these are basically in-exclusion criteria for the publications that we want to include. Exactly, it's for trial. The the unit of analysis or the unit of interest in uh, meta-analysis and network meta-analysis is the the study, not the patient. Unless, of course, we are doing an individual patient uh, network meta-analysis, in which case we are talking about something else. Yeah. So, but let's let's focus at the moment and constrain ourselves to the the most common case of uh, evidence synthesis from ab- aggregated data. So you are searching for the publication to extract the data or the, the data extraction team uh, gets the data out of the papers, again, that, and, and not only the outcomes or the characteristics, but also they evaluate the studies with respect to the risk of bias, and there are many tools that can be applied to that um, um, to, the, to, to, to that purpose. And then finally, once the data is out, the statistician takes them and does some initial checks as usual. And then uh, we need to, the, the first thing to do is just to look at the data set by plotting um, what we call a network plot. Um, I guess most of the audience would have seen a plot like that. It's like a network where the nodes uh, represent treatments found in the database and each link represents at least one uh, direct comparison that features in your data set. Yeah. 
These are always kind of the f first graphs you see in these network meta-analysis. And I think they also represent why we talk now about network meta-analysis. Very early in the development, we also talked about mixed treatment comparisons. Um, so there's a couple of different synonyms, but I mm -hmm. think nowadays network meta-analysis is kind of the standard phrase that we use for that. And, yeah. yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, previously it was it has been called indeed uh, mixed treatment meta analysis or multiple treatments meta analysis, but now we all accept the term network meta analysis, which is a relief. So we know we are talking about the same thing. Yeah, and then once you get the network, and you you need to to understand the the structure and um, see whether it's a star-shaped network where everything is compared to a common comparator like the oldest treatment or maybe placebo, depending on the field. And then you go ahead and you do a first synthesis of data with the, the, the aim actually to do a, a test to see whether the data fits together or not. So, so in in there, you you would first you would first do all the let's say pairwise meta analysis first. So, so if you have let's say multiple treatments that compare uh, treatment A to placebo, you would first combine all these and have a look into that. Yeah, well, again, it, it depends on your data. Some very sparse networks where you have only a couple of studies per comparison. Um, then it might be of limited usefulness to do pairwise meta-analysis. Uh, but uh, in most cases, absolutely, you will start by doing a traditional pairwise meta-analysis, primarily to, 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 to understand your, your data mm -hmm. better. Okay, to see whether there's any heterogeneity already on, on, on that level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... Um, uh, I'm skipping ahead because what what I'm usually doing is to use the test for uh, inconsistency that I will describe later on. Uh, th these are tests that tell you whether the the indirect evidence and the direct evidence agree in in statistical terms. Whether I mean they they, they give the same estimate more or less. Because to my experience, this test has been a very useful tool to detect data extraction errors. Okay. So, so basically, inconsistency for, for those that are not so familiar with the term is if you have a head-to-head -head study of A versus B, and you also look into uh, indirect comparisons of A via C to B, then C's both these uh, comparisons, the indirect and the head-to-head -head one, should be give you the the same, or at least approximately the same same result. So it's, then it's consistent. Otherwise, it's inconsistent. And yeah, well, how much of the difference is then inconsistent or not? That's that's a that's a um, But how how do you from if, so if you see then something about there being inconsistent, and that's actually a listener question from, from Paolo um, that I received up front to this interview, um, what do you do then if, if you find these inconsistencies there? What, what, would, what would be your next step? I asked the team that extracted the data to go back and check the comparisons that I suspect mm -hmm are introducing inconsistency. Uh, empirical evidence by Archie Veroniki, uh, published a few years ago, has shown that inconsistency is more likely to occur in small triangles. Triangles, I mean, the evidence composed by A, B, A, C, and B, C studies, as you described in your theoretical example. If So if this triangular loop has... Uh, one comparison informed by a single study, say we have 10 AB, 10 BC, and one AC study only, then this AC comparison informed by a single study is very often susceptible to introduce inconsistency because of data extraction mm -hmm. error. Okay. 
So I asked, I go, I, I detect uh, cases like that. And then I asked the data extraction team to check. And very, very often this um, has revealed that, you know, the data has been extracted in the wrong direction. Instead of putting a negative mean difference, they have put a positive mean difference because instead of putting A versus C, they put C versus uh, yeah, A. Yeah, or example. messing up the odds ratios, these kind of things. Yeah, I've seen that as well. Yeah, so that's quite, quite common. Yeah, so that's the first thing to yeah. do. Yes. Okay, very good. And if these are still correct, so, so, and if, uh, the team comes back to you and says, well, we double checked everything and everything is correct from a numbers perspective, what would be your next steps then? Well, once I see that once, yeah, that the, the data is correct, then actually I go back. I go back to the network and then we plot descriptive statistics of effect modifiers by treatment comparison. So in the protocol of the network meta-analysis, we should have already described what are the susceptible effect modifiers that can introduce disagreement between direct and indirect evidence if they are imbalanced. So, for example, if you have the triangular network that you have been describing before and the, the targeted population is adults, but all AC studies have been undertaken in geriatric populations, which, of course, are adults, so that's why they are included in our data set. But it can be that the, the AIDS is an effect modifier for the involved treatments. That means that the relative advantage of one treatment over another changes um, across age groups. Then the, this difference in uh, age between AC and AB uh, studies will introduce inconsistency. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I see. I see that. And so, so in the protocol, you already have defined for which treatment effect modifiers you check. Um, and I think that is also where the expert opinion is really important that you know, okay, uh, these are the things that we need to look out for. These are the things where we need to check whether, for example, head to head studies have different inclusion criteria and maybe placebo-controlled studies and um, cease to be aware that these could lead to, to inconsistencies. Very good. And I, I really like also that you have a, a, a graphical approach uh, for that because I think whenever you want to compare uh, treatment effects and, and um, together with the confidence intervals, um, It's really nice to have these graphical approaches like, for example, forest plots. Do you use forest plots as well for, for this approach or how do you visualize these kind of things? Yes, I do use uh, forest plots, but not the traditional forest plot where it's um, studies represented. But I use forest plots where I plot the direct, the indirect and the mixed evidence Uh, to gauge any discrepancies between direct and indirect. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I like that very much because then you can also see in which direction it goes, whether the direct evidence points to a bigger or smaller difference, uh, things like that. Yeah. And I, I was asking for that because that was another question from Paolo <laughs> that I got uh, before the interview. Mm -hmm. By the way, um, as a listener, if you're... Um, Uh, want to also give input into interviews that I'm doing or uh, any other um, podcast episodes that we are recording, um, watch out for what I'm posting in the Effective Statistician um, LinkedIn group. And um, I'll regularly post when there's an interview coming up or when there's a podcast recording coming up and, and then you'll have the opportunity to give a little bit of input um, into this. So that would be really nice. Okay, Georgia, let's come back to uh, the NMAs. So now we have checked for the uh, inconsistencies 
and we have looked into whether also data makes sense and all that we have the, the network laid out nicely. What's the next step then? Well, assuming that there is no reason to suspect that the data does not fit together and direct and indirect evidence all around uh, is what we call consistent. So they are in agreement, the different sources of evidence. And just opening a parenthesis, there are many statistical approaches to that, either the graphical approaches that you I, I just described or particular tests like the separating indirect from direct evidence, known also as uh, mm-hmm. node splitting. There is a normal test also, uh, the design by treatment test that tests whether the, the network fits together as an entity. Uh, and so once you have applied this test and you have also looked uh, uh, at the distribution of effect modifiers across the network and you made sure that everything is, um, is in agreement, then you move on and you do the synthesis. And uh, you people uh, can use different software to run uh, all that. Um, what I use nowadays is... NetMeta package mm-hmm. in R, uh, programmed by Guido Schwarzer and, um, and, uh, Gerta Rücke. And, uh, but most of the time I use, uh, self-programmed routines in Judge Run from within. So, so the, um, package from Gerta Rücke, is that the frequentist approach? Ah, okay. It is a frequentist okay. approach. And JAX is, of course, the Bayesian approach. Okay. Is there any, um, do you have any kind of personal preferences between these? Uh, it, it's not a personal preference. Is uh, It has to do with the analysis mm-hmm. that needs to be done. If inconsistency is found or if the, the distribution of effect modifiers is uh, a bit different across the comparisons, then depending again on the effect modifier, you might need to apply network mm-hmm. meta regression to see whether agreement would improve by sort of adjusting for differences in that effect modifier. And unfortunately, net meta doesn't do network okay. meta regression. So you have to do that in a Bayesian framework. So basically in your protocol, you would need to basically upfront plan for all kind of different um, findings that you may see in Mm -hmm. your data uh, so that you can be flexible in terms of um, what analysis approach you take in the end and you don't go basically into the data and see some things and you need to change your protocol uh, then you move forward, you see another problem with the data, you change your protocol again, but I think you can't foresee any data problems that you might step over, isn't it? So, so if you think, for example, well, well, there is, you know, this, this overall, it looks like a connected network, but there's this one study that basically is in the center of that, that connects everything. And that is somehow weird. And, um, that leads to, you know, all kind of different problems with, with the overall network. Um, things like that, you can't all plan for that. So, so do you have some kind of um, changes to the original approach kind of section in your protocol or in your results then in the end? Well, I think that's a fairly common situation that people, when they publish their final review, they include also a section like changes from the protocol, if not a section, just a note somewhere that, look, we have promised to do that or that, but we did something different because of that observation. Mm -hmm. I think that as long as people um, are transparent and reporting is clear, then I don't see any problem. Protocols, they are meant to improve transparency and guide people and being um, 
you know, a trail that we are supposed to follow, but they are not there to bully us or to tantalize our analysis <laughs> if we feel that it's uh, scientifically justified to change things from the protocol, we shall do so, but just report that transparently and give the reasons why you did that. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I think that is a much more feasible uh, approach and it uh, it's also transparent. So um, I like that approach very much. In terms of um, going back to the, to the steps, so now you have the done the synthesis. Um, as you just described, maybe you even have done some additional um, meta regressions. What's then the next step? Are you now completely ready? Yeah, well, the, the challenge is to present the results in an easy-to-digest way. Because usually you have a lot of treatments, a lot of comparisons, and a lot of outcomes, And the multitude of information produced by network meta-analysis, it's not always easy to digest and distill a concrete message out of it. There are on the top of the effect sizes that you might want to present, which is already uh, a difficult task if you have many treatments and many comparisons of interest, you might want to present ranking of treatments. And to this purpose, they are um, um, metrics like uh, the sucra, the surface under the cumulative ranking curves, or other probabilistic metrics like the probability that um, one treatment is better than the other, or it's better by, than the other by a certain amount. Um, then you need to present that too, or you might want to find another um, clinically meaningful way to, to show your results to the clinical or lay audiences. Yeah, and I, I think this is indeed quite a big challenge. So um, if you, for example, look into the uh, antidepressant area where you've done uh, a lot of research and there were uh, you were also involved in this landmark paper by, by Cipriani that looked across lots of lots of these um, compounds with, I think it was more than 140 studies included. It's quite a challenge to condense all that into a reasonable um, research paper that is understandable. And I think it's a challenge to find a good balance between having all the details there um, But and on the one hand, having all the details, and on the other hand, having a good, reasonable, um, digestible paper. And also, I'm as a statistician very often want to know exactly kind of all the details, see all the uh, additional sensitivity analysis that were done, um, all the inconsistency checks, all the kind of these things. It's not really feasible to include that in a in a in the main part of the paper, probably just in the, the uh, some kind of electronic supplement form. And uh, the main part of the paper, especially if you have um, higher end journals, you can only include a couple of figures. If you have only, let's say, three figures in in such a Uh, paper. What would you recommend to include there? Um, before answering your question, just to go back to what you said about the, the antidepressants paper, uh, there were 522 wow. okay. <laughs> network and 21 antidepressants plus placebo. So you can imagine it's a lot of information to, to present. And about the appendix, our appendix is more than 100 pages long. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if there are three figures of what I would present, it's practically what we presented in, um, in, in this paper in The Lancet. The first figure is certainly the network plot. Mm -hmm. People need to understand what is out there. I think that is really good because it gives you directly kind of the evidence that you have for each treatment, but it also directly lets you see what are the 
in which part of the network is you have a lot of evidence and where the evidence is mm -hmm. really just sparse. Yeah. Yeah. So figure one is pretty much always the network plot. So in that paper, we had two network plots on figure one, one for efficacy, one for acceptability. And I encourage um, Uh, statisticians to plot these networks um, by making the best out of the graphical information that they can convey with, like, uh, for example, plotting the nodes proportional to the number of patients randomizing that node. So, for example, in our network, the placebo node was really massive compared to amitriptyline node because there were like 20 more Uh, 20 times more patients randomized to placebo than to amitriptyline, say. And um, then the, 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 the links, which represent direct comparisons, should also be proportional, say, to the number of studies. And uh, maybe you can also color the links and the nodes according to the risk of bias. So, for example, the placebo node, which is a very large Uh, node could be presented like a pie chart where red represents the proportion contributed from high risk of bias studies, green from low risk of bias studies, and yellow from moderate risk of bias. Oh, that's a nice that's way thinking. of thinking about it. So, so basically, you incorporate much more than just the network into that thing, but also you see how how much yeah how good the quality is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then figure two um, is a forest plot alike presentation of the effect sizes, usually the effect sizes against a common comparator that makes sense. That could be, for example, placebo, if included in your network, or could be the oldest treatment, a reference treatment, for example. And then again, please try to to make the best. And you can also sort that uh, forest plot, isn't it? So, so, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was about to say that you can make the best out of it by presenting the interventions or the drugs, not in alphabetical order, but maybe uh, according to uh, their rank, like from the best rank to the worst rank. That's, that's nice. And then you do that for both outcomes next to each other. So you can directly see kind of how ranks might change if you have, um, uh, yeah, for the different treatments. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can uh, alternatively in the appendix or in the main text, you can present the leak table. Usually journals do want the leak table in the main uh, publication, not in the appendix. Uh, it's a very busy table that has on the diagonal the name of the interventions and in the off-diagonal the uh, relative treatment effects. So basically you have the relative treatment effect of any intervention against any other intervention involved in the network. Yeah, and if you have that table and you have two outcomes, you can use the upper right-hand side for one outcome and the upper uh, lower left-hand side for, mm -hmm. for another. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's, uh, that was uh, figure four in our publication. And then the final figure that I also find quite uh, useful is a two-dimensional plot um, using the main efficacy and the main acceptability or safety outcomes. So on the horizontal axis, put the odds ratio for efficacy, say, and on the vertical axis, the odds ratio for acceptability. And then its drug is represented by the efficacy versus acceptability odds ratio. Mm -hmm. And you can also plot the confidence interval. So basically you get these um, little crosses says across this, yeah. this uh, plane. Yeah, I like that also. Um, I have also seen that this was done for Sasukra. And to be honest, mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan for that because um, if you have odds ratios then um, or risk differences or something like this, then it's pretty easy to kind of compare it. But for the Sukra, you very easily lose the um, 
the meaning because the uh, for for sucrose you can have huge differences um, because just by the ranking you know the the it's um, if you have a small if you all of the drugs are very very similar let's say from a tolerability uh, standpoint but there are huge differences from a uh, efficacy standpoint you always have of course this forced ranking and the um so so by using a sucra in such a plot you would overemphasize the differences on the uh, tolerability side uh, versus the differences on the efficacy side however if you use the odds ratios or the risk differences then you can still see how clinically meaningful these differences are. And so, so I, I really like your approach uh, there. And coming back to the, um, the table with all the different individual comparisons in there, that is also where you could add um, shading or color coding for, for um, any uh, inconsistencies as well, isn't it? You could put, um, yeah, well, you can color the, the cells any way you like. You might want to color them according to the risk of bias of the studies contributing evidence, or you want to might color them according to the credibility, and we will come back to that maybe later, I hope, or according to the inconsistency or according to heterogeneity, any component you like. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so with that, the, the table itself also becomes some kind of graphical tool, which which is really nice. Okay, mm -hmm. in terms of the yeah. table, how would you how would you sort the table? Would you also sort it by by ranking according to to one of the two outcomes? Usually, yes. In uh, in our last publication, it was alphabetically. Uh, because it's easier to to find the drug you're interested in when you're reading yeah. it, and because it's a it's a quite busy and big table. Maybe it would be when you have many drugs or many interventions in the diagonal, better to sort them alphabetically so people can easily go to the cell and uh, column and row they are interested in and find it more easily instead of. Um, um, ordering them by ranking, be it the odd ratios or the, the sucrose. By the way, I want to come back um, talking about sucrose to the statement you made about the sucrose and how they would uh, amplify the, the differences mm -hmm. uh, between the interventions. That doesn't have to be the case. It Whether um, sucrose and Odd ratios, the, the mean odd ratio we, we, yeah. we are referring to when it comes to ranking, whether the ranking or sorting the drugs according to the mean odd ratio versus ranking them according to sucrose, whether these two rankings uh, disagree or agree depends a lot on the precision, so how much information we have all together in the network, but also the differences in precision. If we have drugs that have only a couple of studies, small studies, and all other drugs, they are informed by many large studies, then there will be important disagreement between sorting according to the odd ratio or sorting according to sucra. But if we have more or less balanced information on the network, as it is, it was the case uh, using uh, in the antidepressants uh, example, then the two rankings should agree. Um, note that ranking using the mean odd ratio completely ignores the uncertainty around this odd ratio. Whereas ranking the drugs using the sucrose, it accounts for, let's say, the confidence interval or the imprecision with which the that point estimate that that odds ratio is accompanied. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's it's kind of, of course, if you have uh, just uh, one treatment in there that has very little evidence, um, it's you know just this random fact that these can easily be outliers to the top or to the bottom 
of of the of the network yeah. and so so they can you know very easily be there but but through the through cross they are kind of pulled in a little bit and instead of just looking into the ranking so to say that's why i always say that Sucras and ranking probabilities and treatment hierarchies, they are a nice uh, first step to look at the results, but it's only just the first step. Then you should look at the odd ratio against placebo or the common comparator or really take the time to try and digest the full um, league table. Okay, very good. Okay, so... Now we have presentatory results. What is the what are the remaining steps for the NMA? Well, to to see whether you believe <laughs> them. These results are just numbers. How much do you believe these numbers that you see on the paper or on your screen? And um, that brings me to cinema, which is a framework for uh, evaluating the confidence in network meta analysis results. Uh, maybe the audience is familiar with a grade system, uh, which is a system to evaluate the credibility of results from, say, pairwise meta-analysis. And they have extended it to uh, the network meta-analysis, but we have come up within the Cochrane collaboration, we have come up with an alternative uh, system, which, however, we have implemented in a user-friendly, I hope, um, um, uh, software which is free it's called Cinema I will uh, send you the link so you can put it down from the podcast and people can access it and there's pretty cool graphs like the one I told you oh, before nice. that, uh, that you can uh, plot each node uh, which represents a treatment in uh, in a pie like plot like a uh, with percentages of uh, information from low, moderate, or high risk of bias studies. And in order to evaluate the credibility of the results, we have um, the following components. You evaluate them according to the within-study limitations, like um, within-study biases, risk of bias. The classical tools from the Cochrane collaboration are used to evaluate whether a study uh, pertains to high, moderate, or uh, low risk of bias. And uh, then, according to the indirectness, indirectness relates to what I described before. If you're interested in adults, but the study uh, reports results from the from geriatric populations, then you sort of indirectly uh, um, answer the question you have been uh, mm-hmm. asking. Um and then we evaluate the results according to reporting bias, so whether there is a, um, the suspicion that some of the comparisons have been sub- subject either to publication bias or to selective reporting bias. And then we evaluate them according to heterogeneity and to inconsistency. Obviously, the larger the heterogeneity and the larger the inconsistency, um, the less easy the interpretability of the results under different contexts. Awesome. Very good. And, and then, then I forgot, it's also imprecision. Uh, large confidence intervals are in a way penalized uh, in terms of credibility because if you have a, a very large confidence interval, then this doesn't allow you to make any sensible, uh, to draw any sensible clinical conclusion, like whether you will give that intervention or not to your patients. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's important. It's if you want to make a, a recommendation for uh, physicians or for, for payers or for patients, you need to account, account for the, not only for the treatment effects that you find, but also on the uh, credibility and then the, um, yeah, measured by the confidence intervals as well as uh other sources of potential bias there. Okay, very good. Um, so then we are now at the end. Very mm-hmm. good. Yeah. If um, so, for for the listeners that start 
out completely new about a network meta-analysis? Do you have a recommendation for what they should read first? Um, yes, I think uh, they should start small by reading the newly updated chapter in the Cochrane Handbook, mm -hmm. which uh, describes network meta-analysis um, in a non-technical way. Uh, but uh, to my appreciation, in a quite important way to understand the essence of network meta-analysis, not just the maths. And then once this is uh, done, then uh, they could move into the technical literature. There are many uh, tutorials published in journals like uh, Research Synthesis Methods, or statistical methods in medical research and statistics in medicine, that they describe um, um, the, the technicalities behind network meta-analysis. Um, many uh, books uh, for evidence synthesis do include chapters on network meta-analysis. I could send you later the links if you want. And then there is um, a recently published book by Sofia Diaz and colleagues, Uh, fully dedicated to network meta-analysis and it's a more more on the technical Awesome. Side. And of course, there are many network meta-analysis courses taking place year-round in various places, uh, several of which uh, I am involved like in Oxford or in Wengen or also here. In okay, Berlin. very good. We'll put all the links to these different uh, resources into the show notes. So just check out theeffectivestatistician.com, look for uh, Georgia's name, just search for her and you'll easily find the episode and um, there you will have everything. Awesome. Thanks so much. We, by the way, there's also some nice resources on your university homepage. Uh, we'll link to that as well. Awesome. Thanks so much for uh, this really, really nice chat about network meta-analysis. Um, I very much liked how we stepped individually to the different network meta-analysis. We touched on a couple of the key assumptions that we need to check around in network meta-analysis, how you can present and also how which tools you can use to to run the nmas and um summed it up with a couple of references thanks so much georgia for that thank you too i enjoyed it very much this podcast in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join this awesome community today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about it Become a PSI member today. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helped with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. So, reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.